0: Hi, my name is Jana Metzger. Welcome to The Gospel House. Our mission here at The Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. That in the gospel, we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies the implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance the gospel message of Jesus Christ.
1: Good morning, everyone. Well, that story is a tough pill to swallow, isn't it? Whew. We are in the middle of this Sovereign Sermon series, and then we read a story like that. That's an old punch to the gut, right? Because that's what sovereignty is, right? Sovereignty says that God is our ultimate authority. That ultimately, God is in control over all of his creation. Everything that God has created, it all is working together for good in his perfect plan. Which means, yes, even this is part of God's plan. It's kind of hard to hear, isn't it? God is in complete control of this, of this situation. This is probably one of the most difficult things for us to grapple with when it comes to sovereignty, and we talked about it a little bit last week. Point one from last week was the sovereign excuse, right? A lot of us don't like sovereignty. A lot of churches, people don't teach sovereignty is in God is in complete control because there's some hard stuff we got to grapple with and one of the hardest things that we face is if we teach sovereignty that God is in complete control it causes people to do the wrong thing it's a bad motivator right that's that's what we look at sovereignty and we think well if God's got a perfect plan right If God's got it all laid out, then what's the use of me doing anything, right? What's the point of praying? What's the point of telling other people about Jesus? He already knows who's going to accept him and who's not, so I'm off the hook, right? But that's the sovereign excuse. Those are the excuses that we use sovereignty for. Well, I can just sit back or even worse, well, I mean, if God's in complete control of it, I can just do whatever I want. I can sin. I can have a whale of a time. And he's in complete control, so he's going to work it together for good. That's not what the promise is, though, right? And that's not how the gospel motivates us. If that's how you're motivated, then can I just challenge you? You've missed the entire point of the gospel. You need to go back to the life of Jesus Christ and relook at what he did for you and change what you're motivated by. Because that's a horrible motivator. Because actually, sovereignty, what it gives us is it gives us hope, it gives us security, it gives us assurance that we are part of God's plan, even if we screwed up in the past. And for those who love Jesus, that's what Romans 8.28 talks about, right? For those who love Jesus, he can take even our missteps and he can work them together for our ultimate good. Which includes the misstep of others. And I think if we're being real honest right now, that's what we really struggle with, right? Grace is awesome when it applies to us. Right? Anybody else? You getting uncomfortable here? Is the Holy Spirit poking a little? Huh? Right? Grace is awesome when it applies to us. I'll take all the grace you, gi- you want to give me. But when I've got to start applying grace to others who have wronged me, hold on a minute, Jesus doesn't work like that. Uh, doesn't he, though? Right? And that's the same way with sovereignty. It's the same way with God's plan. Well, yeah, God's at work in me, but he's not at work in this person who's lying and telling all these horrible things. Ooh. Right? Because here's the deal, y'all. God's either in complete control. Now listen, Christian, trace this out, right? We gotta chase the implications of this. Pull on that thread. Is your, is your theology gonna start to unravel when you pull on that thread? Because if God is not in control of one thing in the history of mankind, that thread starts to unravel real quick. And all of a sudden, you got to start asking questions. So wait a minute, is God in control of anything? Right? Because if you say your God's all-powerful, if you say your God knows everything, if you say your God is all-good and all-loving, but that one time, he stopped being one of those things. That doesn't work. Your theology is going to fall apart really fast. And there's a lot of Christians, y'all, whose theology has fallen apart completely to where they don't believe in Jesus anymore because they've bought in to weak theology, which we're going to talk about today. So what do we do? What do we do when we are confronted with this, that God is at work even in the lies of the enemy? even in the lies that people tell about us. How do we get through that? And the answer to that is we have to lean in to the truth about sovereignty. There is a truth to God's sovereignty, and it is that truth that doesn't provide us with an excuse to take it easy, that doesn't provide us with an excuse to sin, but that provides us with an anchor so that when someone wrongs us, we are able to move forward. We don't camp out in that transgression against us. Look at Joseph. Joseph exemplifies this throughout his entire life, but mostly we use this as a benchmark chap- or verse last week, two verses, I guess. Uh, we use this as a benchmark to where we were going to launch from, and this is at the end of this story. Spoiler, I've spoiled the whole story, so if you didn't know it, now you know how it ends. Joseph's brothers who sold, sold him into slavery come back to him And meet with him. And they're worried that Joseph, now being the most powerful man in Egypt other than Pharaoh, is going to take his revenge on them, right? And so, what's Joseph say to them? They come to him, Joseph, hey, well, our dad was still alive. He said, forgive us for everything or else he's not going to love you, right? That's not exactly what they said, but pretty much that's what they said. And Joseph says to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Ladies and gentlemen, do not try to sit in God's chair. Don't do it. So many of us, and y'all, we live in a culture that tells you every single day to take a seat in that chair. Every single day. We are, we're enlightened beings, right? This, all, this, all the new science we have, we don't need God anymore. You can sit in that chair. You know what's best, y'all. I can tell you. Maybe some of you will be bold enough to say this. Every time Jeremy Allen Metzger has ever stepped in and tried to fix my own problems, it has worked out so much worse than if I had just let it alone. I mean, literally, I, I, I would have been better off doing absolutely nothing than trying to get in there and fix anybody else, right? For some reason, we think, I'm going to get in there, and I'm going to fix this, and I'm going to do my thing, and I I know how to do this. And we find out real quick, not so fast, right? But when we let go and let God take control, he tends to work things out, right? Now, I'm going to be the first to tell you, not all the time, right? Not all the time, because a lot of times, that's we talked about this a little bit last week, but that's the Christian advice we get.
0: Let go and let
1: God, and everything's going to work out perfect. Yeah, but maybe not this side of heaven. And we've, Christian, we've got to do a better job at that, because this is, we've, we've talked about this a lot, but these are the things people leave the faith over, because they're taught in church over and over again, let go and let God, and everything's going to work out, but then it doesn't. And so instead of saying, boy, maybe that church just has really bad theology, or maybe that church taught me wrong, they think, yeah, this God, he's, he can't exist because he didn't come through for me. Right? Be careful what you teach about God. Now, I'm certain, I've told some of you this before, I'm going to get to heaven, and I consider myself a decent teacher of the gospel. I like to teach. It's a gift God's given me. I'm going to get to heaven, y'all, and God's going to be like, Jeremy. me." <laughs> You butchered so much about me. Right? That's part of that humble walk with God. We've got to have a humble walk with God. We've got to understand we cannot wrap our minds around who he is. Right? But with the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us, as long as I stay surrendered to the Spirit, he's going to lead me into the mind of Christ. Right? Who has the mind of Christ? Nobody but God. God. So if I'm trying to do it Jeremy's way, if I'm trying to teach Jeremy's way, I'm going to miss it every time. But if I teach the Spirit's way, if I say what the Spirit tells me to say, if I do what the Spirit tells me to do, I'm going to get it right every time. What are we doing trying to do our own thing, right? Let's let him do it. So, and then, if we give God control, when we give God control, then we can claim the promise that we see in Romans eight twenty-eight. That God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. See, it's not just God can work things together so that Jeremy comes out smelling like sunshine and rainbows. It's that God can work all things together so that my insignificant life in the entire timeline of humanity has ripple effects on down through the generations that I could never plan out on my own. It's about that legacy, right? Are you going to be a stone that you let God throw into a lake and cause that ripple? Or are you going to try to ripple on your own? You can't do it on your own, y'all. you got to let God do it. And He will have an impact throughout the years. So let's lean into the sovereign truth. We're going to look at three things when it comes to truth. We're going to look at the lie... We're going to look at injustice and then we are going to end on truth. Because that's always a good place to end on, right? So first up, the sovereign lie. And this ties in directly with our point from last week. God is at work even in the midst of the enemy's lies. We talked about that quote from George Whitfield last w- week, right? It's not just that God is at work in the enemy's lies, It's that God takes the lies of the enemy, the things that Satan himself is trying to do to stop the gospel, and he uses those exact things to advance the gospel even more powerfully. Right? He takes what the enemy's doing, and he works it for good. We sang about that, right? And since we sang about it, it's got to be true. Just kidding. That's bad theology. Don't do that. But that is true. God takes the works of the enemy and he causes them to do the exact opposite thing the enemy had planned. We talked about persecution against the church, right? Anytime, if you look through the history of the church, anytime persecution breaks out in an effort to stop the gospel from being being preached, the gospel grows like wildfire. I mean, it's, it's like fertilizer for the gospel, right? It just goes out of control. When persecution comes out, it's when the church gets comfortable that we tend to relax on proclaiming the gospel, right? When Christians elevate to a position of power in society, go ahead and do do your historical research. When Christians hold the power, you know, the, the place of priority in society, not much happens with the gospel. In fact, a lot of times we get really goofed up stuff that starts to happen. Look at the Church of England. Right? Church becomes this big, powerful thing, and all of a sudden the king's making all these rules about the church that probably should have never existed. But that's what happens when the church grows to this social power. Because when Jesus came, what did he say the church was supposed to be? The least, right? Serving. Last. So when we take God's kingdom and we say, Oh, God, you goofed that up. You know, you got that upside down. We're supposed to flip this around. Right? You're supposed to be at the top, Christian, not the bottom. You're the head, not the tail. right? When we do that, it goofs everything up. But when we do it how God says to do it, we get it right. Surprise, surprise. So even in the midst of this lie, even in the middle of this whole tale of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, God is in control. And poor Joseph, right? I mean, Right? <laughs> He gets to Egypt. He's sold to slavery by his brothers. That's a harsh blow. But in Egypt, he finally gets in with a prominent guy in Egypt. He starts making advances. He's getting ahead. And then this happens. Every time he starts to get back up on his feet, just something comes and knocks him right back down. Every time. Now, Kurt just read it for us. But here it is. This is God's plan at work. It happened one day. That Joseph went into his house to do his work. None of the men of the household were inside. Potiphar's wife caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came to me to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. It's like when your mom says, oh, you just wait till your dad gets home, right? It's a horrible feeling. Then she spoke to him with these words, the Hebrew slave whom he brought to us came in to make sport of me, and as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. You know, you read these stories, and... I, I don't. I never really like the type of preaching where we speculate into what the characters were thinking and feeling. It's very popular these days because we want to know what everybody feels and you know all that stuff. But it's very it, theologically speaking, it's a really dangerous place to go. When the Bible doesn't tell us how a character feels, it's very shady to fill in the gaps on our own. So we don't want to do that. But you do wonder here with Joseph, right? When all of this stuff is happening, if he's thinking, "Man, alive." If God is for me, what in the world does it look like to have God against me? Because I have done nothing but the right thing here. You know, I'm tasked with committing adultery. And it's always been interesting to me the response that Joseph gives to Potiphar's wife. He doesn't say, like, no, I don't want to sleep with you. He doesn't, he doesn't like, like, there's nothing like that. His response is purely from a moral standpoint, no, this is wrong, right? And so it's not like, now Potiphar is a very successful man in Egypt. I'm sure his wife was fairly attractive. So it's not that Joseph is like, nah, you're unattractive. I don't want to do this. Right? I think that's how a lot of us try to paint this picture. <laughs> that's not what it was. You know? And she's begging him, begging him every day. And every day he stands on the moral ground. So he's got to be thinking, God, I did all the right stuff. What the heck are you doing? When do you pull your end here? Because I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And now she's throwing all of these accusations at me. But here is the wild part about this. Even this, this absolutely awful situation, it makes your skin crawl, right? You get in that position where like, you want to step into the story. You ever watch those movies and the actor does such a good job of portraying the bad guy that then you see him in another movie and you're like, oh, I hate that guy. It's like, wait, he's, but he's the good guy in that movie. But he did such a good job at playing the bad guy. Like, that's how I feel like if this movie is made, everybody hates Potiphar's wife. And at the end of it, like, no matter what movie she does after this, everybody hates Potiphar's wife. Because it's, like, it's slimy and gross, It makes your skin crawl what she's doing here. She's done everything wrong. And yet Joseph is the one that pays the price for it. But here's the deal. Joseph gets thrown in prison for this. In prison, Joseph interprets a dream That dream that he interprets leads him to be remembered and to interpret a dream for Pharaoh. After he interprets the dream for Pharaoh, he gets raised to a position of power where he tells Pharaoh there's a famine coming. The famine comes, but because of Joseph's advice, because Joseph rules the land and and rules the wealth of Egypt well, he spares the people of Egypt from this famine and everyone in the surrounding areas, including Joseph's father, whose name is Israel, right? If Joseph never goes to jail, this is a pretty messed up statement. <laughs> if Joseph never goes to jail, he never makes those social connections. You never thought jail was where you needed to go to get your next promotion, did you? But he never gets those, so he never makes it to stop the famine, And if he doesn't stop the famine, then Israel and his entire family, including one son in particular, named Judah. Because do you know what happens through his son Judah? There's a very important prophecy that comes at the end of Genesis where we're told that the scepter will never depart from Judah, which means that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, will come from that line. That Messiah saves the world, saves you and me. If this lie is never told, that line for the Messiah dies and you and I are still in our sins. That lie saves all of us. Pretty messed up, isn't it? But that's how thoroughly God's plan works together for good. Isn't that incredible? See, we don't like this. We really don't like this story, especially not in our culture today. Because when someone tells a lie about me, I want to come to my defense, right? I want to stand up for my name. I want the truth, right? We're, We're Christians. We're all about the truth. Doggone it. We stand for truth. We speak the truth. We shout the truth from the mountaintops, right? But are we always paying attention to whether God's asking us to do that? Now, this hits home for me personally. I had a situation when I first started in ministry. It was a rough road. It was a really, really rough start to ministry. I'll tell you the detailed story sometime but it was rough. But what happened in the midst of it, there was all sorts of instability and turmoil. And if anybody's ever been in a situation of instability and turmoil, what you have is a bunch of people talk. Right? And I had a bunch of people talk about me specifically. And one thing that got attacked more than anything else was my marriage. There were rumors and there were accusations and there were lies floating around about how I had been unfaithful in my marriage. I was a worship pastor at the time. People criticized how I worshipped. I mean, it was nasty. Like, every day I was going through this stuff. But so clearly, God told me, Jeremy, do not defend yourself. If you defend yourself, you are robbing me of the opportunity to defend you. So do not say a word. So I didn't. Y'all, some of you know this because you can't do it. (laughs) Some of you know it because you've done it. You know how hard it is to listen to people trash your name? To listen to people throw you in the mud day after day after day after day to where your reputation means nothing? It's hard. And every day you got to wake up and you got to go right back into it. It's like walking into the lion's den every single day. And it is hard. But I didn't. I didn't. I never defended myself. Now, if the opportunity came up, if somebody accused me to my face, which everybody here knows, that never happens, right? But if that happened, I would speak the truth. I didn't, I didn't go in with the lie. I didn't say, yeah, you're right, I did cheat on my wife. No, because I didn't. It was a lie. But if the opportunity presented itself, I stood for the truth, and I said the truth. I didn't shout it. I didn't seek people out to scream it to, but I sought the truth. And there came an opportunity where I was thrown under the bus publicly in front of everyone. It was embarrassing. And by the grace of God, because anybody who knew me when I was in high school, that Jeremy would not have done this. That Jeremy would have put up his dukes, and that person wouldn't be standing because I would have let him have it. But by the grace of God, all I asked for was clarification. I said, I'm sorry, could you explain to me exactly what you mean by that? Because I don't, that's not how I do this, but, but if you could clarify, I'd really like to see that. And they couldn't. They couldn't clarify even what their statement had meant. That caused the person who was the leader at that time to ask that person to leave the room, and him and I had a really good conversation. But because he saw my humility in the situation... It caused him to trust what I had to say, and here's the craziest part. Fast forward years later, that person hand wrote me an apology note, apologizing for all of the ways that she had misstep. Listen, y'all, if I had gone nuclear, now look, I'm not, I'm not like, I'm not going to like get in there and fight somebody like that. But like, if you want to have words, I know how to tear somebody down, right? We all know how to tear somebody down, right? If I had gone nuclear in that moment and just how good it would feel to let somebody have it, right? There's no way that relationship would be restored, right? But because I kept my mouth shut and let God defend me, that relationship is restored. I can't do that, right? If I come to my own defense, I can't restore that relationship. But God can. And sometimes I think in our society, you know, self-care, it's all about you, right? Well, if people are lying about you, of course you stand up for yourself. I'm I'm not saying we don't speak the truth. But the biblical command, if we're talking about standing on biblical truth, the biblical command is to speak the truth what? In love. So if you can't speak it in love, don't speak it right? If you can't do it the way the Bible says, then just don't speak. Keep your mouth shut until you can. But sometimes we are so quick to defend ourselves that we don't give God the opportunity to defend us. And when we rob God of the opportunity to defend us, we miss all of this. We miss the restored relationship. We miss the miracle of seeing God move on your behalf. But God stepped in. He stepped in and he defended me. He can step in and defend you. He stepped in and he defended Joseph. Now here's the problem in this story of Joseph. We don't really like the way that he defended Joseph, do we? Isn't that how it goes sometimes with sovereignty? I know that God's defending me but I don't really like the timeline he's working on, right? God, couldn't you have come out a day after all these people said all this stuff about me, right? So I don't have to go through all the, we don't like his timeline. We don't like the way he does it. But this does not mean that we take control, right? We talked about that. This is what it means to sit in God's chair. When God is moving and I don't understand it, when his timeline is different than what I want it to be, that doesn't mean that I step in and take control. Well, God, you're moving kind of slow. I better get in there and and help you out. Yeah, because that works, right? If God is in control, you are not. When God doesn't look like he's in control, that is not an invitation to you to grab the steering wheel. It's an invitation to you to be still and to wait because he is working. He is always working. What we don't like is that lots of times he chooses to work through injustice. That sounds wrong, doesn't it? Now, this particular story is a very interesting case of injustice. You have your critical race theorists out there. They would be having an absolute heyday with this one. Because which critical race do you choose to believe? The Hebrew slave or the female in the situation? (laughs) I'd love to see them duke it out on this one. (laughs) Oh, but I wouldn't. But (sighs) I've debated, I've been praying in the spirit a lot on this point on how far to go here. We need to talk about critical race theory a little bit here. It plays out particularly in this situation because, and, and here's the deal, I, let me get this, I'm going to say this at the very beginning because I want this to be the, the biggest nugget that any of you take away from this. There's a lot of stuff that we have. You know, when politicians write these like big long bills that nobody actually reads but they're the laws that govern our country, Right? So you get all these politicians. They've gotten so smart. They are just so smart in the ways of the world. So they'll write this big, long thing, you know, and they'll put in there, like, we're going to send $10 billion to feed starving children in this third world country. And then they parade it around. Look at, we're going to save all these children. And then underneath, in this tiny, tiny little footnote, they put, and another $75 billion to fund abortions. And then everybody, you know, on the other side of the aisle who doesn't like abortions, they're like, no, 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 we can't pass this. You're giving more money to fund abortions than you are to say. But the other side doesn't advertise that, right? They only advertise, oh, they don't like to feed starving children. And they call themselves pro-life. This is terrible, right? And so we've gotten good at that. The same thing happens when it comes with critical race theory, when it comes with Black Lives Matter, all of these political things that we have. Church, here's the deal, I'm speaking to to the church right now. Please, listen to what people are saying, okay? I know this isn't going to sit well with some of you, but listen to what people are saying. Because a lot of times, as soon as critical race theory, CRT, BLM, as soon as that stuff comes up, we put up our dukes right away. Nope, 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 uh uh-uh, nope. And we stop listening, But Christian, that's the worst place for you to be because if you don't listen, you can't hear the needs that are being expressed. Now, I will say this. Critical race theory, Black Lives Matter, what has happened is that those have become politicized. And within both of those movements, guys, they seek to do good things. They seek to do good things. So hear me on that. You want to call me woke? You can call me woke. I really don't care. They seek to do good things. They just do a terrible job at it, okay? But the problem that we have is that they have snuck in all of these other ideologies within the framework so that when you say, I'm sorry, as a Christian, as a church, I cannot give money to the Black Lives Matter movement. Then they say, well, you bigot, you're racist. It's not that. It's because you fund everything but where I want that money to actually go. Do I think that there is racial inequality still in this country today? Yes, I do. Do I believe that black lives matter? Yes, I do. But I cannot support a movement that is giving money to fund these other things that are tearing apart the nuclear family. You wanna talk about how much you believe in science, then let's talk about the scientific studies that say a culture does best when children are raised in a home with a father and a mother. That's not the church preaching. That's science teaching. Scientific studies say that. So you want to be about the science, let's be about the science, but let's be about all of it, right? And so we've got all of this money that's supposed to be going to racial inequality, but it's going everywhere else too. That's why church, You can't get on board with these things. And the same goes with critical race theory. They have slid all of these other things in there. What is critical race theory and Black Lives Matter really looking to do? It's looking to level the playing field, right? It's looking to right injustices. Church, do you know who you serve? You serve a God who page after page in this book says, I am a just God. I will not stand for injustice. Look, I know that nobody likes to read it, but if you actually read the book of Leviticus, what you are taught in those laws more than anything else is that our God loves justice. So when we talk about writing injustice, ladies and gentlemen, church, shame on us because all of these other movements shouldn't even have to exist. Because the church should be at the forefront of all of it. We should be the first in line fighting against racial injustice. We should be the first in lines fighting against gender inequality and all of these other things. But we should be doing it the right way, which is what? God's way, right? What does God say? Now, this is what's interesting with critical race theory in particular God says this in Leviticus 19.15. He says, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. In critical race theory, what we get is we get an unfair balance where we try to tip everything to the minority. And, and every other every minority class, that's why I said this is an interesting case, because Joseph in this situation is a minority. He's a slave but he's also a man, which means that he also has the upper hand on the woman who is also a lower minority. So it's an interesting clash, Sociologically speaking, it's a fun study to do, right? No, no, nobody else out here, I know Lisa's a sociology nerd with me. But, but that's, that's what's going on. We cannot tip the weights of, of justice either way. What critical race theory is seeking to do Is to elevate now. What's interesting? We're on the sociology ramps. We get into the social deconstruction, right? Where and there's this there's this movement within sociology, within literary criticism, all this stuff that seeks to deconstruct everything, and that is blending dangerously together with critical race theory. And so what we have is anyone who holds a position of power, any position of power needs to be overthrown needs to be gotten rid of. And we need to take everybody who holds no power and elevate them to where they have a position of power. Do you see the irony in this? Because what happens when we get somebody else into a position of power? Well, wait wait, wait a minute. Now we got to go back and do the whole thing all over again, right? Which is the problem that we have with deconstructionism is that it seeks to deconstruct everything, and if you deconstruct everything, you have nothing left. Now, any deconstructionist will tell you, well, we we seek to edify and build up as well as tear down. (laughs) How's that going for you, right? I mean, look. Look at what's going on, right? It's absolute chaos, and that's the goal of it. Tear everything down. And build what? Because there's nothing left after you've deconstructed it. So we've got to stand against these things. We have got to be against these things. But here's the thing you guys ready for this? Here's your sovereign right hook. Even in the midst of injustice, God is sovereign. Amen. Y'all. There's a lot of Christians out there with their panties in a bundle over this stuff. Am I allowed to say that from the pulpit? (laughs) Right? We are so worked up about this stuff. God is in control. Breathe. Ask the Holy Spirit how he would have you to respond and respond. But don't fly off the handle your way. Let him lead you. Because look at what he does here. When his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in jail. Potiphar, hashtag, believes all women. And Joseph goes to jail. Joseph is guilty without even getting a fair trial. What's crazy is, if Potiphar knew the real story, those roles might be switched a little bit, huh? Joseph is literally trying to do his boss a solid and not sleep with his wife. If Potiphar's wife is this open about trying to get Joseph to sleep with him, you have to wonder how many other servants came in there and didn't get told on. So Joseph is trying to do a solid here. And not because he loves Potiphar, but because he loves God. He's clinging to his morality, clinging to his virtues, and is punished for it. It's absolutely maddening, isn't it? And yet, it's all part of God's plan. We find in this the secret to enduring all of this, to enduring the lies, to enduring injustice. It's the secret. A long time ago, you know, the, 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 these Negro spirituals were, were a huge thing during slavery. They would sing these, these spiritual songs, and, you know, we, we attribute it. modern times, we attribute it to, well, those were secret songs to get them along the Underground Railroad. Yes, some of them, but the majority of them were rooted in deep, Christian spiritual values. Why? Because they knew that God is sovereign. Because they knew that someday every wrong will be made right. That's what God's sovereignty says. And even if I am not around to see it here on this earth, I will be around to see it in eternity. That's the hope that people going through injustice need. That's what they need, and it's the hope that the world doesn't have anymore. As the world continues to drift away from God, away from this this Christian God who is all-sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, just and good, we lose that. The world loses that. And so we don't know how to fight injustice We don't know how to fight lies. Now look, do we stand up for truth? Absolutely we do. We stand for truth. But can I ask you, where in the Gospels do you ever see Jesus screaming his truth at Pharisees? Do you ever see it? Well, yeah, but Jesus' personality was just, stop. No. Y'all, the truth doesn't need to draw attention to itself. Because it's the truth, right? The truth can be quiet and can be steady and steadfast because it's the truth. It doesn't need convinced, right? I don't need you, I don't need you to believe the truth for it to be the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And when you watch him walking this earth, he did so without shoving it in people's faces, right? Now look, he didn't bend at all, right? When people came at him and tried to knock him off of that truth, he stood his ground. He didn't move, not even on the cross. He did not move from that truth, from who he is. But he didn't need to scream it either. He didn't need to fight for it. He let the truth be the truth. He stood on it. He stood his ground. And he stood for the sovereign truth. Now, the church has allowed itself to be duped into some really bad theology. And it's really funny because when confronted, we will all say, well, we don't believe that but when stuff starts to happen we almost always revert back to this bad theology. Jesus actually talks about it twice. He talks about it in Luke 13 and he talks about it in John 9. First in Luke 13, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says now on the same occasion There were some present who reported to him, being Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem. This is bad theology that Jesus is addressing. Bad things happen to bad people, and only bad people. Has anybody even lived this life? Have you been paying any attention to what actually goes on? So, since bad things only happen to bad people, therefore, if bad things happen to you, you must be a bad person, right? Right? It's bad theology. We've talked about how God doesn't do formulas, and he doesn't do formulas like this. It's not bad plus bad always equals bad, right? Good plus good always equals good, right? Do good things and you'll get good stuff. Yet over and over again, maybe not outright, because look, the church is really good at preaching the gospel, right? You can sin all you want. Go out, have your fun. It doesn't matter what you do. Jesus will save you. That's the gospel. We're really good at that. But then when it comes to Christians suffering and us having to walk with them through suffering, was there unconfessed sin in your life? Did you, did you have something? I mean, your kids are sick. Do you, what, what did you do wrong, right? Jesus also talks about this in John 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, "Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind?" Jesus answered, "It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in them." The man was born blind. Someone had to have sinned, right? It's not how God works. So why do we still believe it? For, now, see, most of us, when we read the story of Joseph, we know how the story ends, right? So we've, we've kind of been robbed. If you can go back to the very first time you ever read the story of Joseph, you get that thrill, right? But when you go through it the first time, if you're actually living this with Jesus, and this or with, with Joseph, with Jesus too, and all this stuff keeps happening... We start to ask ourselves, right? What what in the world did Joseph do? Right? You read the book of Job. That's exactly what Job's friends do, right? Job, what did you do? Because you literally are just getting dragged through the coals here. There's got to be some kind of sin that you're not telling us here. What's going on? Right? We could say the same thing with Joseph. What are you doing? Your life is literally falling apart. Get right with God, man. You want Him to keep coming at you? This is what it looks like when God's against you. Eh, not so fast, though, right? Because we have read the end of the story of Joseph. And we know because we're in the sermon series. This is all part of God's plan. And that is the real lie that we believe when it comes to sovereignty. Bad things happen, therefore God has abandoned you. Does anybody else ever feel like this? Maybe not, maybe I'm weird, but I always feel like when I am going through the most trying times in my life, those are the times when it feels like God's cut the phone line, right? I am going through like, like I am seeking him, I need answers and I needed them like three weeks ago, and I am just like, oh my goodness, I don't know what I'm going to do. And it's all falling apart and everything. And it's like, God, lead me, guide me. And it's just like, mm, beep, beep, beep. I'm sorry, the caller you're trying to call. is Right? It's like, God, what is going on? And, and the temptation on our end, even as Christians, even if nobody else is giving you this advice, even as Christians is, God, what have I done? God, you've, you've left me. I'm in the desert here. I'm in the wilderness. What what did I do? Why are you leaving me high and dry here, Lord? But that's bad theology because the gospel tells us the truth. And it tells us with Joseph, But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail, so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Just in case you missed it the first time. And whatever he did, the Lord made prosper. This is the sovereign truth. Emmanuel, God with us. God never left Joseph, not for one minute, and he will never leave you. No matter what your circumstances say, no matter what your circumstances look like, he will never leave you. The question is, how do you know that? How can you be sure that God will never leave you? And the answer is, because that's what the gospel says. In Mark 15, verses 33 to 34, we see an absolutely miserable scene played out on the hill of Calvary. The word of God tells us this, it says, When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is one, you guys have heard me preach on this before, but this is one of my favorite parts of the gospel. Because if we read in the book of Isaiah, there's a prophecy about Jesus that tells us that like a lamb led to the slaughter, he remained silent, which tells us that on his way to the cross, as the soldiers were driving the crown of thorns down on his head, as they were beating him and mocking him and spitting on him, whipping him with this cat of nine tails that's literally taking chunks out of his flesh, he didn't raise his voice. He didn't make a sound when they get him to the cross and drive the nails into his hands and into his feet, he didn't make a sound. Y'all, that's how strong your God is. But, in this ninth hour, the sin of you and me is placed on Jesus' shoulders. Jesus had lived a life of perfect communion with his Father which means that there was never a moment in all of Jesus' life that he had ever experienced being robbed of that presence, of not having the Holy Spirit with him. But when our sin was put on Jesus, God had to turn away because God can't be around sin. So for the first time in Jesus' life, he experienced what it was like to be absent of his father. And it was at that moment that he cried out. Can you, I mean, let, imagine that. You're talking about the physical pain of having nails driven through your hands. And all of this other stuff that he endured up to the cross. And not a single thing made him cry out. But at this moment, God turns his face away and utterly rejects his one and only son. Why? Why did God reject Jesus? And the answer is so that he will never have to reject you. Because God turned his face away from his only son, he will never turn his face away from you. So no matter what you're walking through right now, no matter what trials you're going through at this moment or to come in the future, or what you've walked through in the past, I don't know why you're going through them. Any preacher who tells you he does is a liar. But God does. And I can tell you why you're not going through it. It is not because God is punishing you. Because all of that punishment, all of that wrath was poured out on Jesus. To say that God is punishing you because you're going through something is to say that that punishment wasn't enough that Jesus endured. And we know that that's not true. So it's not that God is punishing you. It's because in his sovereignty god is working out his perfect plan which we're told is for your ultimate good nothing else in this world can give you that kind of assurance that kind of hope it's it's amazing to me how much our our world runs to karma right karma is going to get you come on what a load of crap i mean anybody Like live a little bit of life. Bad things happen to good people all the time. Well, yeah, but it's going to turn around. It doesn't. I have seen really great people and it never turns around for them. But I can tell you this. The moment that you say goodbye to this life, it turns. No matter what you go through on this earth, the moment because of what Jesus Christ did for you, the moment you say goodbye to this life, all of this turns. We've got to start living for heaven, y'all. we got to start realizing that that is our ultimate good, not this world. God's promise says that nothing in this life can rob you of an eternity with him. And that starting the moment you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he is with you every step of the way. God is in control. You can trust him to direct your life better than you ever could. That is the truth worth standing for.
0: Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House Podcast. We pray that you were pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learn to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button. Leave us a rating and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house slash connect. Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you and remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.